How many of you have ever changed jobs? Raise your hand if you've ever changed jobs. All right, as expected, nearly all, even among the very young. The average American holds 10 different career positions before retiring, so changing jobs is part of life. In the Harvard Business Review, um, Boris Groisberg and Robin Abrahams described their interesting, really interesting research in job transitions. Here's what they write. While job moves are just about inevitable, they are seldom easy and nearly always emotionally fraught. And too often, get this, they lead to a noticeable decline in performance, both in the short term and the long term. People who switch organizations, whether they're wide receivers changing football teams or managers going to new companies, all face similar problems, close quote. They then go on to describe those problems. Let me summarize by saying, in essence, the new social environment that someone goes to can prove so dizzying that a person ends up with internal struggles in response. In particular, steady thinking takes a beating in a stressful new situation. The authors comment uh, thusly, awkward social situations can trigger uh, flight or fight instincts, putting strategic thinking squarely on the back burner, close quote. Thus, the main predictor of success in a job change is how, one, how well one handles difficult social situations and the stresses that we call office politics. The, the main predictor of success in a job change becomes how well one handles difficult social situations and the stresses of politics. If we can only learn how to manage social and political stresses in our lives, then we can find great success even in the face of difficult opposition. How many of us would like to be a better worker, a better servant of God, a better uh, husband, wife, child? Raise your hand if you would like to perform better. Raise your hand. All right. According to the research, that's going to require that we learn how to handle political and social stresses better. Wonderfully, God has provided a phenomenal mentor for us in the person of Nehemiah. Now, we face a rather odd structure to today's study. Here's what we need to do. I think the best way to do this is we're going to read a lot of Nehemiah's text at once. In fact, we're going to read all the sections that relate to his political savvy. <clears throat> you need to understand we're studying Nehemiah a little bit differently this, uh, this winter. We're studying Nehemiah according to his eight amazing character qualities. If you want to study it verse by verse as you go through the way we normally study, you can certainly do that on your own, and, and I think we're going to cover everything, but we're going to study it by, by trait. And the trait today is his political acumen. But we've got to read quite a bit of text to do that. And you're probably wondering in your favorite voice from the Princess Bride, um, why would reading Scripture as a walk together be odd? Thank you so much for asking. Here's why. It's because today's students, and that includes all of us, today's students have less attention span than a goldfish. I'm totally serious. Microsoft conducted a study in 2015 that concluded, uh, and it was a somewhat flawed study, but still I think it's interesting. It concluded this, the mean results show that a person loses concentration after eight seconds. Eight seconds. By contrast, the average goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. Uh-huh. Ergo, we need help to read God's Word and get all that He has for us today, especially since we have a lot of text to read. So let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters here in the goldfish bowl, and I beg you to help us. We, we recognize that we have short attention spans. We don't even have attention span to stay with this prayer, but with you all things are possible, and I beg you to empower us that we can really learn from your word. And speaking of empowerment, I thank you for all the great blessings we've seen, even in the last week in our church. People that were in the hospital yesterday are here today. It, it, it is amazing how you have healed and blessed 
And we pray for even more. Lots of folks sick. We ask you to encourage them and help them. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 6. Uh, Nehemiah, here's the context for you. Nehemiah is uh, in front of the most powerful man in the world, Artaxerxes, the emperor of Medo-Persia, and his queen. And he's just asked for a new assignment. He wants a new job. He's asked to be sent back to Jerusalem, back to his, his people's home place where he's never been. He's grown up in captivity in, in Babylon, Persia. And he wants to spark and oversee the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. So we pick it up in verse 6. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the regions west of the Euphrates River, so they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I live. The king granted my requests, for I was graciously strengthened by my God. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to seek the well-being of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. After I arrived in Jerusalem, it had been there three days, I got up at night. I took, I took a few men with me and didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate and inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. Ha! Huh. How are you doing? Take a breath, my fellow goldfish, rub your eyes, flip over, use your fins, flip over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, let's read verse 17, the next section about Nehemiah's political savvy. Chapter 5, verse 17, there were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. You're doing great. You're doing great. Okay, continue down. Our very last text is the next verse, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall... One of the big things he was doing was rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, and we'll get to that one in a, in a few days. And that no gap was left in the wall, though at that time I had not installed the doors in its gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messages to them saying, I'm doing a great work. Can I come down? Why should the work cease while I leave it go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal, and I gave them the same reply. Sanballat sent me this same message a fifth time by his aide, who had an open letter in his hand. Just happened to be open. Oh, looky here, look what I've got. Uh, in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem agrees that you and the Jews are planned to rebel. This is the reason you're building the wall. According to these reports, you're to become their king, and have even set up the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf, there's a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king. He's talking about Artaxerxes, the great king. So come, let's confer together. 
And I replied to him, there's nothing in these rumors you're spreading. You're inventing them in your own mind. You're a legend in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they'll become discouraged in the work and it will never be finished. But now my God strengthen me. I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was restricted to his house. He said, let us meet at the house of God inside the temple. By the way, that's how he spoke. I don't know if you know that. Inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How can I enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired so I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin, and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they've done, and also Noadia, the prophetess, and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. Stop there. Wow! You did it. Give yourselves a hand. Seriously, put your fins together. Give yourselves a hand. That was amazing. All right. Somebody wake up that guy in the third row. Um, Remember what our modern researchers taught us. Remember what they taught us? Awkward social situations can trigger uh, flight or fight instincts, putting strategic thinking squarely on the back burner. Did Nehemiah face some difficult, awkward political situations here? Yes or no? Did he? Yeah, he most certainly did. It was a minefield. He had a political confab with the emperor, the authority over him. We also saw important choices he made regarding those under his power. And then, and then we read about stress with those who were outside his community. Remember, the main predictor of success in any job is how well one handles difficult social situations and the stresses of politics. If we can only learn how to manage the social and political stresses of life, then we can find great success even in the face of difficult opposition. Nehemiah does exactly that. It's why he flourishes in this tough new assignment. So let's learn from him. Start with Nehemiah's dealing with authorities over him. By the way, that's the headline you see in your notes. Uh, Open the worship guide you got when you came in on the left-hand side. You'll see that headline, Nehemiah dealing with authorities over him. Two traits make all the difference for Nehemiah and his assignment. First, he is definitive. Chapter 2, verse 6, Nehemiah gives the king a definite time. He uses the word zmon. Zmon is a particular term that means a specific and certain time. You know, you know how some countries are known for very inexact time commitments, right? Uh, when I first taught in Central America, I learned to be very wary of anybody who told me they would do something manana, right? Some of you are laughing. You've learned. You see, I learned the translation of manana in that situation is sometime between when I have nothing else to do and never. Um, Now, I learned a great deal from the wonderful people of that particular Central American country, but definitiveness was not a strong suit of theirs. By contrast, Nehemiah is very clear. He binds himself to a specific time, Zman. He he has asked the emperor for help, and now he gives a detailed statement. Folks, there are very few things you can do that will more impress the people who are over you. Be definitive about time and follow through. Many of you employ people, right? You oversee people. You can speak to this, can't you? People who give you a time and then keep their word, those people are golden, right? And along with employers, another quick application of this, this applies to anybody to whom you turn for help. We've got a bunch of medical professionals here. I'm not going to make them raise their hands, but they will tell you that one of their biggest frustrations is a patient who does not keep an appointment. If you're going to go to someone for help, you need to be definitive and you need to follow through. Same thing applies to anyone who has authority over you. Second great characteristic of Nehemiah toward his employer was loyalty. He was loyal. All those letters that the emperor sends with him, these are very serious business, folks. They meant that he spoke in the name of Artaxerxes. One does not merely toss those kinds of warrants about like cilantro in a Tex-Mex kitchen, all right? 
As we learned last time, Nehemiah was trustworthy as the cupbearer to the king. He held Artaxerxes' life in his hands. He was not like Kronk, the poison for Cusco, Cusco's poison. That's not him, all right? And Artaxerxes needed loyalty. He needed loyal partners. Let me tell you something was going on in the world at this time. At the time all of this is happening that you just read, this province, the imperial province of Egypt, was just roiling. Uh, there was a, a minor Libyan king, Ianos. He broke his, his oath of fealty to the emperor, and he decided to try to take Egypt away from the Persians. He wrote to the Athenians, and he asked Athens to come down and help him, and, and, and Athens did. The Athenians sent 200 triremes filled with soldiers and marines. They landed in Egypt, and they conquered Egypt all the way from the mouth of the Nile all the way up to Memphis. The emperor was in serious danger of losing Egypt, which was the major breadbasket of the, of the empire. So what Artaxerxes did, he's living in Susa at this time, he writes to the Spartans, who are the enemies of Athens, and he tries to convince the Spartans to go to war with the Athenians so the Athenians will have to withdraw all of their people in the ships. The Spartans play him for a fool. They take all of the great king's gold, and they keep taking it, and they keep delaying and pausing, and they have no intention of going and fighting the Athenians. They're just trying to take his money. Because you need to remember one thing when you read ancient history. The only thing that Greek city-states hate worse than each other are Persians. So the Spartans refuse to do it. Finally, Artaxerxes realized what's going on. He recalls his ambassador, and he gets a general named Megabizus, and Megabizus goes by land, and he, goes by, he has to go by land because the sea is controlled by the Athenians, and he goes down with a massive force, smashes the Greek army, the Athenian army, smashes a relief force that they send, and retakes Egypt for the empire. Now, here's why that matters to our text. How was it that Megabizus was able to get all of those soldiers, that is a very long supply route, and to keep them service with all the material and the food they needed? Because of Nehemiah. You see, they had to go right through Judah to get all their supplies to that army to save the empire, to save Egypt, the breadbasket of the empire. It was Nehemiah's loyalty that allowed them to retake Egypt. It is this trustworthiness that allows Artaxerxes to give warrants to Nehemiah. Look at what else he does. He even gives up a royal possession. Forested wood was a royal possession. And he, he gives it to help Nehemiah's work. That's a very rich gift indeed. This is a much bigger deal and a much deeper relationship than anything we have today, even in countries that still issue royal warrants. For example, Twining's Tea has a, a symbol on it that reads, By appointment to Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, Tea and Coffee Merchants, R. Twining and Company, Inc., Right? Okay, that's really cool. That's impressive. But that doesn't allow Twinnings to just go and steal tea, take tea from, from the royal lands, right? When, when Victoria was on the throne, they couldn't just go to Kenya or India and just take tea without paying for it. They, they, what it means is simply that they have been found a quality company and they're a loyal friend of the crown. Dilly dilly. Um, <laughs> by the way, this is a much better dilly dilly than that other stuff. Um, Nehemiah's warrants are even more extensive because he's an even more loyal friend of the crown. He's allowed to take things that belong to the king. So when Sanballat and Tobiah accuse him of treason, he doesn't flinch. More on that in a moment. Just notice that Nehemiah's loyalty to the crown is so deep that these fabricated charges of treason don't move him at all. Let me show you a really nice summary. It's written by a pastor friend of mine. 
I was discussing this with him, and he wrote me a really cool note. I told him I was going to put it in your notes, and he said I couldn't put his name then. So he said this, Over time, Nehemiah had earned the king's favor through being trustworthy, loyal, and diligent. Thus the king was disposed to care, show concern, listen, and grant Nehemiah his wish. This trust didn't develop overnight. Through serving the king loyally prior to chapter 2, Nehemiah was in a position to ask and receive the king's approval and empowerment. Men like Joseph, Daniel, Nehemiah, they faithfully served secular lords, giving them their very best. In so doing, they glorified Yahweh, and they were able to gain favor, which in turn put them in a position to bless God's people. Quote from Player Unknown. He's absolutely correct. It was Nehemiah's loyal service toward his boss that allowed so much important work to move ahead. That's not to say, don't misunderstand, that's not to say that Nehemiah or Daniel or, or Joseph were sycophants or that they helped facilitate sin. We see certain examples in Scripture where they certainly would not facilitate sin, but they did the work that God put in front of them with honor and loyalty. What about us? Are we loyally serving those in authority over us? And before you write me, Know that it doesn't matter if your overseer is a jerk. It doesn't matter. Artaxerxes was, and in fact, in many regards, he was a horrible man, but Nehemiah served that office loyally. You know, I read your social media posts, and they scare me sometimes. It seems that we are really quick to stab our overseers in the back. We are not loyal, and we don't realize how that is going to limit our capacity down the road. It will. It limits your capacity down the road. Now, on the right side of our notes, you'll see our next examination. Nehemiah is dealing with those under his authority. First thing we notice about those under his authority is our hero is engaged. We see him head out at night on his own, very small group, no guards, just to inspect the situation. No other animals, just his own senses and counsel. Now, here's our best understanding of the route he took. Um, those of you that have been to Jerusalem, you need to rethink a little bit because what you call the old city of Jerusalem is actually not old. Uh, th this is the old city, the part of, of Nehemiah's day, none of which has been excavated. This is all still under underground. It hasn't been overturned. Um, those of you that have been there, though, have been to part of this. So he comes out down here, we think, in the Valley Gate, right in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which was the, the, the refuse burning place. We get our word hell from that. Um, and he walked along with his, goat, his uh, donkey. He went along the wall here. And then he turned right here, heading up toward, uh, some of you have been to Hezekiah's Tunnel, or if you've been to uh, the, the tombs of David's kings uh, with me, you've been to those. Those are right here. So he turns up to go that way, and there he goes into the valley of the Kidron, which is still to this day very steep. So the, the animal can't even make it. So he's clambering through the trenches, and he comes all the way up here to the valley gate and then goes back into the city. All right, that's what he's doing. It's personal reconnaissance. Um, those of you that are military people, you know that personal reconnaissance is a practice of many great military leaders through the eras. Um, the, the general will go and inspect the situation on his own instead of just relying on the words of his subordinates. It's not that a good general doesn't trust his lieutenants. He just wants to be fully informed so that other people's input can best be utilized. Joshua did the same thing, right? You read the gospel, I mean the book of Joshua, although in his case he was looking for a way to tear walls down instead of build them up. Now, this kind of personal engagement is frankly inefficient. It is. It's inefficient, but it's very important. It's more efficient to just read reports instead of losing a night's sleep walking around the walls. But Nehemiah's way is ultimately wiser. Please don't misunderstand. Listen carefully. God is not promoting micromanagement. He is not. Nor is efficiency bad. Efficiency can be very good, but sometimes the boss needs to be down in the trenches, in this case the literal trenches, if he's going to understand the situation. 
number of years ago, uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle collapsed. This had been a biblically strong church. It had thousands of worshipers in 15 venues across four states, annual revenues of $30 million. Many of us grieved deeply the death of that church. We also searched to see what we could learn from that sudden implosion. There were many lessons. One of the most prominent was this. The top leaders at Mars Hill were too disengaged from the work. Please, again, don't misunderstand. No one expects a lead pastor at a large church to be at events, hospitals, Bible studies. That's silly. That's silly. If, if he did all that, he wouldn't have the time or energy to do the things that only he can do. But the senior leaders at Mars Hill were completely removed. Lead pastor Mark Driscoll did not spend any personal energy engaging with the various campuses or pastors. His driving motive was efficiency in everything. You know how he led? He led solely through text memos. That was it. And so he was blind to the, the casualties and the collateral damage that was piling up until it all fell apart. How do you lead in your business? What would an undercover boss reveal about you? All right? How about in your ministry, in your church? Please, don't micromanage. Don't do other people's jobs. But do make sure that you investigate for yourself and that you are engaged. Nehemiah is engaged with the work. He's also very compassionate toward those we lead. He, he leads. Look at uh, chapter 5. We read that he didn't accept any of the special allotment he could have received as the governor of Judah. He did not raise that extra gubernatorial tax that the law allowed. Why not? Because he was compassionate. He cared about people. We see this all the way back at the beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 4. Nehemiah hears about the suffering of the people who were back in Judah, in Jerusalem, and he cries. This man cares deeply about God's people. Such an amazing combination. Think, this is a guy who has reached a very high position in the cutthroat world of Persian politics, something that takes a very thick skin, and yet he's genuinely upset over the suffering of other people. Actually, if you have played contact sports or served in the military, this may not seem so shocking to you. Some of the meanest, toughest warriors I know are the first people to cry with empathy over somebody else's suffering. And Nehemiah puts his money where his heart is. He doesn't take the allotment that is set aside for his use. What's he do with it? Look, he uses all of his resources to feed 150 people a day, both Jews and emissaries from outside Jerusalem. That brings up a really important point about Nehemiah's character, one that I hope is true of our character. We never see him ask others to do something he wasn't doing himself. Look, look at this. This is so cool. Uh, we learned a few days ago that he asked the people to pray. He calls for prayer. Well, he was already praying. We're going to see later that he calls for workers. He builds right alongside them. He said to trust God. Well, he was already crying out in trust to Yahweh. He demanded no usury. And then he said that he would, he would not charge any interest. He said to feed the poor. He's feeding 150 people every day. Parents... What happens when you call for your child to do something that you don't do yourself? Let, let, let me put it this way. Suppose I say to my kids, I say, love your neighbor. You need to love your neighbor. But then I yell at all the drivers who are going too slowly in my way. And I talk at dinner about that idiot who lives next door. And I complain about the kids' teachers all the time. Right? So tell me. Just a simple answer. Am I increasing or decreasing the odds that my kids are really going to live out Jesus' call to have committed love for our neighbors? Am I increasing or decreasing the chances that? Which is it? Yeah, it's pretty simple, decreasing, because I'm not being like Nehemiah. He was compassionate, and he showed his love for his neighbors. 
So that's what Nehemiah does with those under his authority, most of whom were Jews. Now let's look at his dealing with Gentiles. Three traits here, each worthy of our emulation. First, he was honoring. Chapter 2, verse 9. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. Nehemiah made sure his peers and other government officials had no reason to doubt him or be alarmed by his actions. You know, according to the protocol of the day, he could have just sent uh, a messenger. It was less expensive, and it was often done. And yet Nehemiah chose to personally visit these other governors. Why do you think he did so? Because it's wise. It honors our peers when we go to them. Peter Drucker called this management by walking around. When you go see someone and you explain how what you're doing impacts or doesn't impact them, you're building respect. It also makes for really good business. One of the most awarded television commercials of the 1990s had this as its theme, that we must honor people by going to them face-to-face. I want to show you this old commercial. Now, it doesn't translate well into into modern HD, but the direction uh, and and the acting here are really timeless. This is from United Airlines. Take a look. I got a phone call this morning from one of our oldest customers. He fired us. After 20 years, he fired us. Said he didn't know us anymore. I think I know why. We used to do business with a handshake, face to face. Now it's a phone call and a fax. Get back to you later with another fax, probably. Well, folks, something's got to change. That's why we're going to set out for a little face to face chat with every customer we have. But Ben, that's got to be over 200 cities. I don't care. If you're the kind of business that still believes personal service deserves a lot more than lip service, welcome to United. That's the way we've been doing business for over 60 years. Ben, where are you going? To visit that old friend who fired us this morning. United, come fly the friendly skies. Good hat, isn't it? Going to others is honoring. In his autobiography, Billy Graham describes the biggest mistake of his entire career. And it was praying on the White House lawn after a meeting with President Truman. You see, Truman had a sketchy relationship with biblical Christianity, but he agreed to meet with Reverend Graham. After that meeting, Billy and his team knelt on the lawn to pray for the president. The AP took a photo, and it ran it with headlines that slammed Truman, implying that he was really incorrigible and needed a lot of prayer. And it didn't help that poor Billy actually told a reporter about some of his frustrations from that meeting. Ouch. Truman was rightly offended. And he never had Billy Graham back to the White House. By the way, Billy apologized publicly and privately, and he vowed from then on that he was going to be like Nehemiah, and he was always going to honor officials, even ones that were outside the redeemed community. Thankfully, every other president from Eisenhower to Barack Obama was wise enough to seek Billy Graham's counsel and pray with him. And Truman, this is really cool, Truman even forgave Billy. And after he left office, he had the Grahams to his home in Missouri, actually on a couple of occasions. Honor does that. Nehemiah also teaches us to be well-informed. Chapter 2, verse 10, we read that Nehemiah knew how unhappy the enemies of Yahweh were. How did he know? It seems that he had very strong and open channels of information. Then in chapter 6, when Sanballat and Geshem are trying to physically harm Nehemiah, he knows about it. In verse 9 of that chapter, he sees right through their tricks, and he knows they're just trying to discourage. Every trick they try is already known. In fact, sometimes Nehemiah knows exactly what they say to each other. Now, since he never claims clairvoyance, we can assume that he must have had reliable informants. I thought about Nehemiah. I thought about this um, when I one time shared tea with a Mossad agent. It was astonishing 
for me to hear how thoroughly informed they are. Learning just a little bit about modern Israeli intelligence, I, I tell you folks, I would not be surprised if the Mossad knew exactly what the Prime Minister of Turkey said to the people around his breakfast table this morning. Uh, and and that, that, by the way, is why you and I must read about current events. We must. It's why we build relationships all over the globe. Even with people with whom we disagree on major issues, if one is going to lead in a world that is aligned against God's people, you better be well informed. And like Nehemiah, one better be unflappable. Here's his third trait toward the Gentiles. He is unflappable. Now, the full account of chapter 6 is kind of hard for us to understand unless we correlate it to events in our culture. So, so think of it like this. Suppose you're a government employee, okay, and a former government operative develops a dossier on you. And that file contains all kinds of wild charges that you know have no basis in truth. The most serious accusation is treason, but it's all made up. It's all made up. However, the media and the government officials who are over you, they get leaked copies of parts of this dossier. Again, it's all fabricated, but the truth is less important than the fact that your neck is on the line. Then your lawyer calls you up, and he arranges for a secret meeting. And at the secret meeting, he says, look, we've got to protect your life. So let's use the Fifth Amendment right now, and we're going to issue a statement saying that you're going to resign from office, you're going to move to a really small town as part of a plea deal. It's the only way I can protect your life. Oh, and, and the lawyer then suggests that you flee the jurisdiction, which is a violation of the law, but he says that's okay because that's just part of how things work in special circumstances like this. Okay? You got that scenario? That is precisely what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 6. Sunbalat has fabricated this dossier on Nehemiah that accuses him of treason. He's trumped up a bunch of ad hominem nonsense to prove that Nehemiah is making himself king. Nehemiah knows this is ridiculous, and he stands his ground. More on that in a moment. First, enter Shemaiah. Shemaiah is likely a priest because his father's name is the same as a priest who's listed in 2 Chronicles. Shemaiah also has a reputation as a prophet. Now, there's lots of debate about this word, uh, the Hebrew word aksar, that's used here is what we translate restricted to his house. Um, It's a broad term. It actually just means restricted. So I don't think his constraint was due to anything according to the law. I don't think it was illness or uncleanness. I think they're just telling us this was a secret meeting. That's all it says. Shemaiah is acting like Nehemiah's lawyer. By the way, if he was a priest, then technically he is a lawyer. And as a prophet, he claims to speak for God. And in their private meeting, he says for Nehemiah to run to the temple with him. What's that all about? Two things may be going on. First, he seems to be telling Nehemiah to claim the city of refuge law. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, in in Moses' law, Numbers chapter 35, there's a... uh, There's a a wonderful law there. It's a fairly common idea in lots of cultures' ancient law. It's about the cities of refuge. Cities of refuge were established to save accidental killers. Um, Such a person would come to the altar outside the temple, would grab the horns of the altar, and invoke the manslaughter clause from Moses' law. What they were doing is that person was copping to a lesser lesser crime uh, to be protected from revenge. And, and if and they were then tried, and if their crime was indeed proven to be unintentional, it was just manslaughter, not murder, then they were permanently resettled in a city of refuge where their life was protected. Since making oneself king was considered a political move of treason, making oneself king to the Persians was tantamount to attempted murder of the emperor. That's how Persia saw it. You try to make yourself higher than you were. In fact, people who walked into the king's presence and kept their head higher than the Persian king, guess what happened? The king lowered it for them by removing it. Okay? 
So Shemaiah is suggesting that Nehemiah admit that his raising of himself was accidental. This was unintentional and that he should resign to the, 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 uh, the safety of a city of refuge. I don't know if this would have worked, but it might have because the Persians did respect Moses' law and they let the Jews live by Moses' law. Of course, Nehemiah would have been falsely confessing his disloyalty to the king. Second trick of Shemaiah was to get Nehemiah to be disloyal to God. Notice how he says, go inside the temple and shut the doors. Only a priest could do that. A, a, a number of years before this, a king of Judah named Uzziah did exactly that. He went into the priest's uh, area of the sanctuary, and God struck him with leprosy. He was certainly taught his lesson. Shemaiah tries to make this sound urgent, as if special circumstances mean that you should have flexibility in how you follow God's word. But our great role model sees right through this sham. He is as loyal to Scripture as he is to the emperor Artaxerxes. Nehemiah knows that according to Moses' law, Shemaiah is himself the dead man walking, Right, Because any prophet who speaks any plan that doesn't gel with Scripture has a, uh, a really rocky future. Stoning. Yeah, that was funny. Um, so look, look at his response. He says, Nehemiah 6, I said, should a man like me run away? City of refuge idea. How can I enter the temple and live? I'm not a priest. That's against God's word. I will not go. I realized God had not sent him because the prophecy spoke against me. It doesn't gel with Scripture. Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired so I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin, get a bad reputation in order they could discredit me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they've done and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. The others? There were others? He faced this more than once and he handled it all with unflappable grace. Look what he did. He just turned to the Lord and left it in God's hands. By being unflappable and true to Scripture, Nehemiah went through a very tense trial. We can as well. I know, I know you face very tense, difficult political and social trials. So do I. But we can win by being unflappable in God's grace. Look at this. My pulpit teammate, Martin McDonald, sent me a great note on this. Martin was thinking this through, and he said, Wayne, what happens here is that Nehemiah avoids the pathway of impotence. Look at this. This is really well thought through. He says, here's the pathway of impotence. You believe a lie. And then because you believe a lie, you become intimidated. Intimidated, you withdraw distrusting God. That makes you disobey God's calling, and you become uninspiring or more often sinful. Then you become discredited even in the eyes of the world. You're not worth being heard or followed, and therefore you remain ineffective. Isn't that true? It all starts with believing the lie. If they can get you to believe the lie, then you become intimidated, you withdraw, you distrust God, you disobey God's calling, you become uninspiring, you become discredited in the eyes of the world and ineffective. By contrast, those who are unflappable are positioned for great impact. Those who stand on the truth, refuse to cave, who calmly and boldly live out their calling as God's people, you know what happens to them? Now, they may be considered offbeat by the world, and we often are, but they're generally well-respected even by the world. Politics comes from the Greek word polis, meaning city or state, and it describes how, how you deal with the stresses and the structures that are related to people. Those who handle politics well can achieve mighty things in the Lord. So, look at Nehemiah's political wisdom. Let's do a quick assessment here. Se seven magnificent traits we see in Nehemiah and how he handles political situations. With those in authority over him, he is definitive and loyal. He is engaged and compassionate with those who are under his authority. And with those who are outside the redeemed community, he is honoring, he is well-informed, and he is unflappable. Look at that list. Look at those seven traits and ask yourself this. Where do I need growth in those? In which of those 
Am I weak? Now, with that in mind, go study. Go grow in those areas. Think. Ask wise people. Pray. Step up and partner with God to grow in all those traits yourself. Most importantly, please do what Nehemiah did and make your first priority your relationship with God. Another of my pulpit team partners pointed this out to me. Uh, David Wade wrote me and he said, Wayne, reading the text for this week, I was struck by Nehemiah constantly calling upon God and thereby giving him the glory. We see this in 2.8, 5.19, 6.9, 6.14. His dependence on and trust in God are emphasized by the fact he takes no revenge on those who persecute him, leaving it to the Lord to deal with them. Close quote. Nehemiah is dependent on God's provision. That's what's behind the continual cries in this text of, Remember me, O Lord. He's declaring his dependency. Speaking of remembrance and God's provision, that's exactly why we New Testament Christians partake in this Lord's Supper. When we, when we come to this table, we admit, we even rejoice in our dependency because God has met our every need. That's why we're unflappable. It's not us. It's because of Him. This bread represents the body of Jesus given at the cross for us. He, he paid for our sins, so all those who cry out to Him for salvation are freed from the penalty of sin which fell on Him. This cup, it signifies Jesus' blood which He freely offered. And then He conquered death and He rose from the grave so that all those who accept His blood sacrifice can follow Him in everlasting life even beyond death. Let's remember Him as we declare our dependence and prepare for the table. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters, those who know Jesus as Savior. I look at that list of how Nehemiah handled things, his great political savvy, and I am smitten because I'm not as unflappable as I need to be. And I, I beg you to change that. Help me with the growth plan that you and I have been working on this week. Empower it. And I, and I pray for my brothers and sisters. Every one of them has areas where they're weak as well. And I beg you to, to work with them, to, to not let this leave their head until they develop a, a plan and they begin to partner with you and grow with you. Empowered by you. Dependent on and trusting you. And of course, Lord, I pray most of all for all the people who are studying with me that are not believers in Jesus as Savior. Oh, I beg you, open their hearts to the truth of your love and their need that nothing is more important than a declaration of dependence. Listen, listen, friend. You, you are separated from God by your sin. But He loves you. God Almighty, the Father, loves you so much. He who exists in triunity, Spirit and Son, He chose to have the Son come to this earth to do what you and I could never do, to pay for sin. And He died for you and rose from the dead so that everybody who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life in Him. Be able to handle all the trials and stresses of this world and be with Him in the world to come by His grace. Please accept that grace. Just, just tell God the truth that you, you recognize you need salvation and you can't do it yourself. Tell God that you trust Jesus. 
You believe on Him alone as your Savior. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Everybody else is still praying. Raise your hand. Good for you. Amen. Father, I pray for all of us, all these believers in Christ, old and new, that we will, that we will be very, very healthy and adroit in how we handle people because we first have been handled by you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.